Hey guys, welcome to the Legendary Tales podcast. I am your host, Adam Bloor. And I am your other host, Isadora Montandai. This is the pot, and our producer Ben is in the room, but he's not mic'd up, so you probably won't hear him. This is the podcast where we talk about cryptids and, and spooky stuff and legends and really cool people and stuff. But thanks for listening. Wow, we're really good at these intros. <laughs> at least we don't ramble on for too long. No, no. We tend to just get right down to we it. We try to, yeah. So last week, or two weeks ago, we decided that we would do something fantastical. And since we've been marathoning these episodes, we've actually managed to stay on topic for once. So we're doing some fantasy stuff. And we are kind of hitting fantasy hard today. Like two, two, two staples, which I think for me ended up being a bit of a problem because there's so much information about my topic that I, that like this is, mine's like a shotgun sort of like approach to my, uh-huh. my studying. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking later on in this s- show history, I'll, I'm going to focus on a region a little bit more and okay. kind of dial it in because things are different. Yeah, I actually found that I could keep mine rather on track because I didn't go into pop culture. Neither did I. Okay, because pop culture. So I'm going to do the unicorn. Yes, let's get, let's get right Adam's down into it. And I'm doing dragons. And I'm doing dragons. So. Okay. So I decided to not go into pop culture unicorn. Mm-hmm. I basically stopped as soon as unicorns were proved not to exist, mm. if that makes sense. All right. I also was telling Adam, there's a lot of quotes in that I'm going to quote in this because a lot of really cool people said a lot of very cool stuff. So I'm going to do a lot of quotes. I've even got a poem. Oh, cool. I do too. Oh, sweet. Okay. I'm going to start off by quoting a guy named Odell Shepard who wrote a book called The Lore of the Unicorn. And I think his... This paragraph sums up pretty much like the feeling on unicorns. He was writing about 100 years ago, but I don't think it's really changed. Whether there is or not an actual unicorn, and this is one of the questions upon which I shall merely quote the opinion of others, he cannot possibly be as fascinating or so important as the things that men have dreamed or thought or written about him. A dream, if it is no more than that, of such great age and beauty as of this unicorn, is far more is far more worthy of consideration then the question is whether we shall have one species more or less in the Earth's fauna. And the dream, at any rate, is an unquestionable fact, a phenomena of the mind. It has grown like a tree, striking roots in the thought and spreading huge boughs against our mental sky. This book about the unicorn is a minute contribution to the study of the only subject that deeply and permanently concerns us, human nature and the way of human thought. Hmm. I just thought that was really cool. It's describing because let's face it unicorns i think we're all pretty sure they don't exist but they do they are so unbelievably perversely ingrained upon our psyche Mm -hmm. that i would have thought it's probably the first mythical creature that any child knows about probably and it invades every aspect of pop culture really um so it's pretty cool and I love that a hundred years later he's still being proved right, which is My Little Pony and <laughs> yeah, and all these things are still persevering with the myth of the unicorn. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where did it all begin? It actually began in the Indus Valley Civilization, kind of maybe, but who knows? The Indus Valley Civilization was a Bronze Age civilization in the northwest re- northwest regions of South Asia, approximately thirty three thousand BCE. Mm-hmm. To 1300 BCE. Mm-hmm. Um, CE. No, sorry. BCE. Common era. Before Common Era. And to get, and it's really interesting because I'd actually never heard of the Indus Valley civilization, even though we've talked about them, not talked about them, 
It's really interesting because I'd actually never heard of the Indus Valley civilization, mm-hmm. um, even though we have just got done talking about this period of history in our History Through the House podcast. Mm-hmm. But it was in South Asia, so we really didn't yeah, it touch upon in... it. But I'm going to tell you a quick little bit about it now. It was one of the three earliest civilizations in the Near East and Southeast Asia. And of the three, the most widespread, along with Egypt and Mesopotamia. So those two we've heard of. Yeah. Its sites span an area stretching from northeast Afghanistan through much of Pakistan and into the western northwestern India. It flourished in the basins of the Indus River, whence where it gets its name, and it had a, a perennial system, mostly monsoon-fed. The civilization's cities were noted, uh, noted because of their urban planning. They had baked brick houses, elaborate drainage systems, water supply systems, clusters of large non-residential buildings and new techniques in handicraft, as well as working in metals such as copper, bronze, lead, and tin. The largest cities contained thirty to 60,000 people, and the civilization might have contained one to five million individuals. Mm. It, the drying out the droughts in the third millennium BCE may have been what caused this demise of the civilization, but um, and its population scattered into these other civilizations. But it's really cool to know that, like, I just found about a new, yeah, ancient huge ancient civilization. Yeah. A lot of their seals seem to depict unicorns. Okay, it was definitely a symbol of like wealth. Okay, one of the big things that's going to come back is all the things that people thought could be unicorns that probably weren't. Um, and one of the things that was certainly prevalent around this time in India was Iraq cattle. Okay. Who were huge. Big, massive cows. Big, massive cows with huge horns. They were just bulls. Yeah, they did have two horns, but a lot of the pictures of them and the, a lot of the depictions of unicorns in these seals are totally in profile. So uh, there's a theory that, in fact, it was just one, two horns, wow. but the way it was depicted was just one. That would mean we are calling them the wrong thing. Yes. Uh, and that's what we're going to find out is a lot of how unicorns came to existence. Unicorns are not in Greek mythology. No. Um, which I found interesting. I just kind of always assumed they were. However, they are actually in their accounts of natural history because they truly believed they existed. Mm-hmm. The earliest description is from Cetus, S-T-E-S-I-A-S. Sounds good. Who wrote a book, Indica, where he described them as wild asses, fleet of foot, having a, cor- a horn a cubit and a half in length, which is... 28 inches, and colored wed, wed? colored white, red, and black. It, they actually believed that India at this point was uh, godlike people with philosophers, artisans, held unquantifiable gold, other riches and wonders. And this book is only remains in fragments, so they, the reality of unicorns coming through to the Greeks were from this kind of almost mythical land, mythical creature from a mythical mm-hmm. land. And he lived in Persia, which is where he got most of his information. And there's a couple of uh, sculptures that have been found in Persia that look like they could be unicorns. He also mentions two-horned animals, like the oryx, which is an antelope Mm -hmm. that they've just recently brought back from the brink of extinction. And he called it the Indian arse, which I thought was quite funny. Okay, It wasn't a unicorn, but it was a one-horned thing horse-like creature. They sound so much more terrible than they're portrayed in fantasy. Like, 
I, 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 so they call it an ass. So I'm assuming it's a donkey. Yeah. With a horn that's white, red, and black. Yes. That sounds really miserable. It, no, the, none of these. It's not until your favorite, Penny. Oh, Pliny. Pliny, the elder. <laughs> Pliny, the elder. We start to get some more fantastical descriptions of them. Heck yeah. Um, My dude. And a lot of the people actually based their writings off this oh. original writing. Okay. So he, Piney, the Piney. elder, describes it as a very fierce animal called the monoceros. Oh, my God. <laughs> which has the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant, the tail of a boar, and while the rest of the body is like that of a horse, it keeps making a deep, low noise. It has either a single black horn, which projects from the middle of its forehead. He also said it was about 35 inches long. I think it's fair to say that perhaps what he was describing was a rhinoceros. Ah. And that is also not the first time that someone describes a rhinoceros and calls it a unicorn. <laughs> Cosmos... Incopletius, a merchant of Alexandria, I have no idea, uh, <laughs> made a voyage to India and also came back and wrote firsthand of his knowledge on unicorns. And he actually gives it based on a four, four brass figures that he found in the palace of the king of Ethiopia. He states from his report that it's impossible to take this ferocious beast alive and that all its strength finds in its horn. When it finds itself pursued and in danger of capture, it throws itself from a precipice and turns so aptly in falling that it receives all the shock upon its horn and escapes safe and sound. What? So it jumps off a, a cliff. Off a cliff. Lands and its, on its horn acts like, I'm guessing, almost like a spring. Yeah, like compresses. Uh huh. And then it really stands up and carries on. Sounds really stupid. There's lots of really cool <laughs> descriptions of this. It's why it's so many quotes. People were morons. Um, so this is kind of where the medieval, because all of these are very different descriptions mm -hmm. of what a, a unicorn, in quotes, is. It's not until we get to medieval knowledge mm -hmm. that this starts to change, and it also coincides with the Bible. Is it medieval Europe by any chance? Yeah. Because we're going to have a lot of crossover in I our think episodes. we are. I think we realized this as we were doing research. So... In the Bible, they actually talk about a unicorn. Which I didn't realize. Not that I've read the entire Bible or am even oh. necessarily spiritual in any way. Okay, so a reem <laughs> is an animal mentioned nine times in the Hebrew Bible specifically. And it is very often translated as a unicorn. Okay. Although, actually, it should be more translated as wild oxen or all cattle. Of course. But it's more fun to translate it as a <laughs> unicorn, so that's what we're going to talk Bible about. The Bible becomes so much more fun when you realize all of these things could be in it. Yeah, it was first identified in modern times with the Aurochs, and they actually think that that was roaming. Those were what were roaming around at the time. It has been, but actually many of Christian Bibles still have it translated as unicorn, unicorn including King James, James Version. That's like the most popular, yeah, like most, sell, most yeah. sold version of the Bible. Although they think in some of the instances in the King James Bible, it could have been a rhinoceros that they were talking about. Okay. But I'm going to give you a quote where they translate it as unicorn because it's fun. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with the band in the furrow? Or will he be harrowed to the valleys after thee? Wilst thou trust him because his strength is great? Or wilst thou leave thy labor to him? Wilst thou believe him? Wilst thou bring home thy seed of the unicorn and gather it into thy barn? Huh. Makes much more sense if you actually translate it as cattle because they're talking about taming and breeding yes. from cattle. Um. 
I'm going to give you a Jewish folklore because I like it. In Jewish folklore, the reem, which, again, could translate as a unicorn, was larger than a mountain and could dam the river Jordan with its dung. Ew. To survive during the deluge, Noah had to strap its horns to the side of the ark so that its nostrils could protrude into the ark, allowing the animals to breathe. King David, while still a shepherd, mistook its horn for a mountain and climbed it, and when the reem got up, carried David up to the heavens. He prayed to God to save him, so a lion passed in front of the reem. As the reem bowed down to the king of beasts, David climbed off but was threatened by the lion. He prayed again, and an animal passed by so that the lion could chase it and leave David unharmed. What? (laughs) What was this unicorn doing? So it's just... So it was like a mountain almost. Its horn was so big that King David mistook it for a mountain. He climbed the horn. Uh, Then the reem stood up. Yeah. It was so big that it then basically took him to the heavens. Yeah. So he said to God, help me. So the God sent... So the God. So God sent a lion. And the reem, because the lion is the king of the beasts, Mm -hmm. the reem bowed down to the lion... Okay. Allowing David to get off the horn. That's super. What's the culture where the turtle we we're living on the back of a giant space turtle? I think it's not Terry Pratchett. No, maybe. <laughs> no, that's Discworld. Okay, that's something different. But I do. Those would be fun to talk about. But um, you know, there's I can't remember what it is, and I hope I'm not being horribly offensive. But there's some culture okay. where they believe that the 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 whole world is on the back of a giant space turtle. But yeah, so that's very like not Christian, like not very Christianity. It's you... just, and it's also interesting because this is one of the first notes of a lion and a unicorn. Oh, there's together. a reference to that in the last battle, the C.S. Lewis book. Okay, the last of the. Apparently, there is a thing Chronicles where a lion and lion and a unicorn are fighting over something in Narnia. Yeah. I didn't get into pop culture. I don't think they fight, but I. Th- do you believe it? Yeah, what? The Space Turtle is from the Dark Tower series by... by Oh, by Stephen King? Stephen King, yeah. But it's definitely like a... Th- it's a thing before that. Yeah, no, no, the Space Turtle specifically. Yeah, is... The World Turtle yeah, the w- is... I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for um, Hindu mythology. Gotcha. Okay. okay, Hinduism. So either Hinduism or a series of books by Stephen King. Or by Terry Pratchett. Or by Terry Pratchett, but that's Discworld. Yeah, okay, so... Now we're getting up to the medievalness, Okay. So the medievalness is reading the Bible where they've got it mentioned and then you've got all these Greek mythologies that also talk about unicorns. So at this point, they've pretty much accepted it as the truth. Okay. Okay. Leonardo da Vinci wrote, The unicorn, through its intemperance and not knowing how to control itself, for the love it bears to fame maidens, forgets its ferocity and wildness, and laying aside all fear will go up to a seated damsel and go to sleep in her lap. And thus the hunters take it. Aww. And this is a like recurring theme in medieval law. Well, they're like a symbol for purity. Yeah, and um, they were attracted to virgins. Eey. Like if a virgin was around, there was a unicorn. They were gonna find her. Is that why there's a unicorn in the forest in Harry Potter? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, Dora said that unicorns are attracted to virgins, and I asked if that's why there was one in the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter. Okay, so they the unicorn tamed only by a woman was well established in medieval law. Mm-hmm. Marco Polo described it, and we'll get into his description of it in a minute because he actually describes it again how it looks. And there's quite a lot of like this is going to come back to the Christianity in a minute. 
But I'm just kind of going to go down a quick tangent, which is the throne of Denmark is made from unicorn horns. But it's not. Well, no, it's pretty much almost certainly made from narwhal tusks. But That's equally cool. Uh-huh. But they were the throne in this, and it's surrounded by silver lions. Mm. And the ceremonial cups that the king of Denmark drinks from are also meant to be made of unicorn horn. Oh, my God. Because they are believed to neutralize poison. We'll go into this in a minute. But they apparently took the look of it from the biblical throne of King Solomon. Okay. And there was supposed to be six steps to the throne and it was supposed to be made of ivory and overlaid with the finest gold. It's a really, really cool looking throne. Mm -hmm. And it is, they think, made from normal tusks. It kept saying that they think it was made from normal tusks. (laughs) Most certainly. Like. Nearly. 100,000% 100,000% sure that it's narwhal tusks. Like, they weren't going to completely disprove it was a uni- unicorn? <laughs> it might be. Yeah, like, they couldn't disprove it was a unicorn or something? Okay, so let's go back into Christianity. So, obviously, the medieval was... Medieval and Christianity is so yeah interlinked mm. that there's almost no difference between the medieval mythologies and the Christian thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, there's a... I don't know if you came across this one. Philosophies, it's a medieval bestiary book, Mm. which was the earliest version of the allegory of a unicorn being trapped by the maiden Mm. who was supposed to represent the Virgin Mary. Okay. The unicorn's supposed to stand for the incarnation. Now... So it is like an immaculate conception thing? Yeah, exactly. So as soon as the unicorn sees the maiden... It becomes Jesus. It lays her her head on its lap and falls asleep. Incarnation literally means like becoming flesh, Mm -hmm. okay? And particularly gods. And a lot of different religions have this thing. Of God's becoming flesh. Yeah. And it is called an incarnation almost across the board in different religions, which Mm. is interesting. Yeah, okay. So it's an obvious allegory for Virgin Mary and... Virgin birth. Virgin birth. Um, And apparently if the maiden had a unicorn lay her head on her stomach, then she could have a virgin birth. Okay. There are a few different versions of this in tapestries. There is one that is like not even slightly ambiguous apparently, where the archangel Gabriel is shown blowing a horn as hounds chase the unicorn into the virgin's arms and a little Christ child descends from the rays of light of the god's father. So they were like, the angels were, I guess, supposedly chasing these unicorns into... Into virgins so they could have religious children. Mm-hmm. But unicorns don't exist. No, which brings... Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but... There's actually a series of gothic tapestries, seven of them, that are now hanging in the Met in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the series, richly dressed noblemen accompanied the hunts and hounds to pursue a unicorn against buildings and gardens. They bring the animal to bay with the help of a maiden who traps it with her charms. She appears to kill it and bring it back to the castle. But in the last and most famous panel, the unicorn in captivity, the unicorn is shown alive and happy. Chained to a pomegranate tree surrounded by a fence in a field of flowers. Pomegranates are important in Greek mythology as well. Are they really? Yeah, it's um, it's it's the fr- I believe it's the fruit that Hades used to to trick Persephone into going into hell with him. Okay, there were also in Christianity, I guess, the symbol of fertility. Interesting. So, very much unicorns, babies, and very much all of these. That one was made in the Low Countries, Brussels, maybe. 
Um, another one was made in the Netherlands in the 1500s, so also very clearly linked to the, well, Holland and the Netherlands yeah, and yeah. things like that. So that was kind of the symbolic version, and it wasn't very long, by the way, through this that they banned some of these ones for being overly elaborate and not containing any sense of realism. Well, how would they? Well, I, I also don't know at what point religious tapestries were meant to not be allegorical and real. Like, no. aren't they all kind of basically... Generally, yeah. I think, like, stained glass, which would be, like, your modern equivalent. Yeah. I mean, I guess you do occasionally... You do usually see, like, the Jesus either crucified or, yeah. like, on the second coming edition. Um, so that's a bit strange. So, as always, the religious stuff, I like symbolism. Mm. And I think it's very clear what the symbolism of the unicorn is in yeah. Christianity. Um, but I more like the kind of day-to-day -day mythology that people would have had around it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was to do with its horn. Yeah. Okay. So really quick, I'm going to give you that Marco Polo description because this is what they thought they were. Because they used – it wasn't just the horn. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of other bits. But Marco Polo said that they are scarcely smaller than elephants. Oh my they God. have the hair of a buffalo and feet like elephants. They have a single large black horn in the middle of their forehead. That's a rhino. Uh-huh. They have a head <laughs> like a wild boar. They spend their time wallowing in mud and slime. So, uh, yeah, or a hippopotamus. <laughs> they are not at all such as we describe when we relate that they let themselves be captured by virgins. Marco Polo knew what was going on. Yeah, he, he knew that this was not... We just didn't call them rhinos yet. Uh-huh. It still, however, didn't stop people doing great trade in horns. rhino and narwhal horns. Okay. Are narwhal horns protected in the same way that rhino and elephant tusk is? Yes. Okay. And I will also say that they look much more like a unicorn horn. Oh, for, absolutely. Than a rhino horn yeah. does. And they're actually a tooth, I believe. They are. It's a big incisor. Yeah. And they're creepy looking, those animals. I know. And I narwhals. can't stop singing the stupid narwhal song. Tor was singing the song while we were doing our research a little bit ago. And I was just like, please stop. For anyone that hasn't <laughs> looked up the narwhal song on YouTube. It's forever it's going to be one of the most like catchy addictive songs you'll ever listen mm. to do it and then hate me okay so that the 14th century bestiality thing what bestiality bestiary you said sorry. bestiality oh <laughs> freudian slip those are two um, different things cool. um okay talks about a bit about why it, and this is where the unicorn horn becoming sacred comes from mm. The serpent comes along and casts his poison into the water. Now the animals mark well the poison and do not dare drink, and they will wait for the unicorn. It comes and immediately goes to the lake and makes with its horn the sign of a cross and renders the power of the poison harmless. A lot of crossover. There's a lot of religion in this one. Um, so this actually becomes a really popular thing, and people are claiming all over to have seen unicorns to come out to decaminate decontaminate water, mm. including Father John Van Hess. And symbolically, obviously, we got the snake poisoning the water and the unicorn saving the day with its purity and virtue. Mm -hmm. um, again, this, this comes from India. It's an Indian legend. Um, and the Greeks reported repeatedly that Indian nobles would drink out of unicorn horns to protect themselves from diseases and poisons. Yeah. A unicorn horn has actually got a name. It's called an alicorn. Okay. And it's, a, it's in itself its own legendary object. Mm -hmm. 
it is one of the most expensive and reputable remedies in the Renaissance, Renaissance, and it also becomes one of the most expensive commodities to buy and trade mm-hmm. at this point. They were eventually put to the test and found that these unicorn horns weren't, in fact, solving all the poisoning problems of the world. However, they were given as diplomatic gifts all the way up until the 18th century. Who was um, who was the like who was giving them? Did you find happen to find that? Because I'm, I'm assuming that they mostly came from the Netherlands. These unicorns. Yeah. Oh, or are they still talking about rhino horns? Uh, well, they were sometimes chips and dust. So it really could have been anything. <laughs> Here's some dust. Here's some dust. It's a unicorn horn. Sections of horns were displayed in cabinets of Mm. curiosities, and those were generally normal horns. Okay. Uh, The horn was used to create scepters and other royal objects, such as the Danish king's throne, and the scepter and imperial crown of the Austrian Empire. Oh. And also the scabbard and hilt of the sword of Charles the Bold. Which Charles was that? I have no idea. I don't even know which country. (laughs) There were lots of Charles. I keep forgetting that England isn't the only one with Charles. No, no, France had a lot of Charles's too. Um. Since they could never be captured, it was quite helpful. To the mythology. To the mythology, because yeah. part of the mythology was you can't capture them. I've seen a, I've seen a unicorn. Prove it. Can't. <laughs> and there were other things that, that it came, like, that they used. Um, a 12th century abbess, Hildegard Binge, recommended an ointment against, le- against leprosy made from unicorn liver. Wearing a unicorn leather belt was supposed to protect a person from the plague and fevers. And leather shoes made from a unicorn were to prevent diseases of the feet, legs, and loins. Hmm. Useful. Yeah, very useful. It, the belief in this horn persisted well until the 16th, 17th century when they actually discovered what a narwhal was. Um, and <laughs> then they realized that a lot of these things they'd been passing off as a unicorn horn. And everyone got mad at the Dutch. Uh, was... Novel. Okay, so the unicorn in England is more than just a thing to settle poison. Are you going to talk about heraldry? We are going to talk about heraldry. So I'm going to read you a poem. And it's not a poem. It's actually like a nursery rhyme, Mm -hmm. which means it's easy to read. Nice. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all around the town. Some gave them white bread and some gave them brown and some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. And when he beat, he beat him out and he beat him in again. He beat him three times over his power to maintain. (laughs) Um, In heraldry, a unicorn is often described as a horse with a goat cloven hooves and a beard and a lion's tail and a slender spiral horn from its forehead. So guys, this is like, now we're actually getting to unicorns that look like unicorns and not rhinoceroses. Can you imagine if Charles II had used a rhinoceros instead of a unicorn? <laughs> Not quite as elegant. When they're shown collared and chained, it may be taken as an indication that they have been tamed or tempered. Okay? So, Elsa Waters, who wrote this thing on called Unicorns, a zoological analysis for Scotland's History Festival, first became interested in the subject when she discovered a medieval cookbook that included a recipe of how to cook a unicorn. Ugh. So can I just say that for a mythical beast, you were making shoes out of them, belts out of them, and cooking them? They were so elegant and wonderful creatures. Yeah. Um, during her research, the historian found that the unicorn was believed to be the natural enemy of the lion. And okay. England... Uses both. Well, no, uh, England is the lion. England is the lion. And France is the unicorn? Scotland. Scotland. Scotland is the unicorn. So 
that is very easy to find the correlation there as to why Scotland adopted the unicorn. Um, according to folklore, they hated each other going back to the ancient Babylons in 3,500 uh, BCE, which ties in with that tale of the lion walking past the unicorn um, and causing the ream to bow Ow. down to allow King John, David, yeah. off the horn. <laughs> and, you know, so... They're the two, I guess they're the two royal, the lion being the king of the forest, you know? Mm -hmm. And the her in heraldry, the unicorn is best known as a symbol of Scotland, a symbol that the English royals adopted around 100 years before the Scots adopted the unicorn. So England adopted a lion, Scots came out and adopted a mm -hmm. unicorn, just basically as a real obvious, we are your enemies. Yeah. Two unicorns supported the royal arms of the King of Scots until 1707 when the union between Scotland and England occurred and the royal arms of the United Kingdom has been supported by a unicorn along with an English lion. Mm -hmm. Post it, a picture of the yeah. of the uh, the stove back. In most back. places, the unicorn has a broken chain. Interesting. To symbolize that Scotland is still... Scotland. Scotland and mm -hmm. free. It's not totally bound to the UK. Also in Scotland, they will put the unicorn on the left and give it a crown, whereas the English version puts uh, the unicorn on the right. Mm -hmm. So the coat of arms that we have in our old house here, the unicorn is on yeah. the right-hand side because it was a British king. There's also gold coins used in Scotland, known as the unicorn and the half unicorn, mm -hmm. were used in Scotland in the 15th and 16th century. And they were often used as finials on different crosses, to denote that the settlement was a royal borough, and certain noblemen were allowed to use the unicorn in their coat of arms, and it was considered a huge, uh, like, symbol of honor if the Scottish royals would allow you to put unicorn in okay. your coat of arms. Okay, I this is really taking us up to the 16th century because then they kind of disappear for a little bit in whatever until until printed literature comes around and then suddenly the unicorn mm -hmm. gains strength again and movies and things like that. Um, it shouldn't need to tell you, I shouldn't need to tell you when the unicorn was disproved or that it has been disproved, <laughs> but it was disproved. The existence of the mythical creature was only disproved in 1825 by scientist Baron George Covia, who said it was not feasible for an, an animal that had a split hoof to have a single horn coming from the top of its head. Worldwide, Belief is that the unicorn, uh, belief in the unicorn, it lasted for many, many, possibly even tens of thousands of years, particularly in Eastern Asia, where it was considered a bringer of good luck. While the theory that a unicorn could not physiologically exist was disproved by Dr. Dove in 1900 due to his experiment with a bull calf, by this point, no one really believed that unicorns existed in the first place, said a woman named Miss Waters. I would also like to say that. Uh, I didn't realize that unicorns were associated with having split hooves. I always thought they had horse hooves. Hmm. So a horse hoof, I don't know whether that was the wrong quote. Yeah. And what he meant was an animal without a split hoof couldn't have a horn. Right. Because actually, I think rhinoceroses have spl split yeah, hooves. Yeah, they're cloven. Yes. And goats have cloven hooves. Yes. And they have horns. Mm, do they? Some goats do. So, yeah, they have, I guess, single horns. And like an ibex. Like yeah. 
So here's my thing. I think that that quote might be wrong because I can't think of a single non-cloven-footed animal that, that has, has horns. horns. Yeah. Also, why not? I don't know. Like, I mean, seriously, all the mythical stuff that's associated with the unicorn mm-hmm. is obviously just that. It's legend, and it's great legend, and, you know, it helped in Harry Potter, and it helped <laughs> in the never-ending story, and, like, you know, obviously it's a hugely popular mythology, mm-hmm. but I don't know why you couldn't just surgically put a horse on a horn on a horse's head and technically have a unicorn. You could, probably. I don't think that... The Geneva Convention likes that very much, though. No, I'm just saying. I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be super comfortable because you'd have no, to like, fuse the bone to. Yeah, I understand that you're not advocating that anyone. I'm not go out advocating and do this. that we go put a horse a but horn why on. Why couldn't you do it? But I'm just saying that what it's all very well, and this brings us back to the original quote at the beginning. Yeah, it's all very well to talk about whether a unicorn could actually exist, as in a animal with a single horn coming mm-hmm. out of its forehead in some form of horse-like body yeah but the reality is that's not what unicorn's about no a unicorn is about the mythology and the purity and the in scotland scotland and i'm confused why why did is there any evidence to suggest that horses ever had horns no like why could why only cloven hood i know that i think you just said that but now i'm very much pondering this over in my brain and i'm very confused as to why so horses used to be cloven hoof okay they did used to be clothes unhooved, which is why if you've ever seen a horse, it has a chestnut. Mm-hmm. It has that bony growth most of the way up its leg. Yeah. That actually used to be its second toe. Okay. Um, they didn't have a cloven hoof. Uh, it would have been, I guess, classified as a cloven hoof. Um, but they would have had a second toe on a third toe, I think, at one point. Ew. When they were really, really little, like way, way back. So the way that horses evolved, we've got a pretty good understanding of how they've evolved, and at no point have they had a horn. Hmm. But it's interesting that that's the case. Yeah, definitely. Because actually, when you start thinking about it, many animals have had horns. Yes. Certainly many animals that physiologically that no longer resemble a horse. Yeah. So, like, even giraffes have little horns. That's true. Deer have horns. Yeah. There's many animals that have horns. So it's just, it is kind of almost weird that an equine didn't develop with a horn. Mm. Yeah. Very weird. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Okay. It's my thing of unicorns. All right. So we're back. Full disclosure. Uh, I've just been on a golf course. <laughs> we took a little break so we could eat sushi and go, and Adam could go play around a golf. So this is now. F- Five hours after we recorded my bit. Yeah, so I'm a bit blurry on the details because I was too busy screaming at myself. So I'm just going to jump right in. And I've changed into a onesie. I'm just going to jump into it, I guess. Um, Dragons. I'm going to talk about dragons, which a lot of crossover between dragons and unicorns. Not really surprising. No, I mean, I I wouldn't say I was surprised, but I was like, oh, that's sort of neat. Yeah. I didn't know I'd get to Piney the Elder. Yeah, which you keep uh, mispronouncing. but that's That's Pliny. It's P-L-I-N-Y, Pliny. 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 It's not a word. No, it's it's a person's name. His name's like Plinius or Plinius or something. Maybe it is Pliny. I don't know. The brewery that makes the beer, uh, they say Pliny the Elder, I think. Okay. Anyway, I'm actually going to open with him. Yeah. He has several chapters. If you, if you all remember his book that was written in 70 AD, the Natural History book. Gripping read. Basically just his uh what, Encyclopedia Britannica, before Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, 
And before they knew that these things didn't uh, exist. Just full of all sorts of information. So he has several chapters concerning dragons, and I will briefly cover some of those. Sweet. Uh, in chapter 11, the chapter is titled, In What Countries the Elephant is Found and the Apostasy of Elephants and Dragons. Okay, well, we know one of those exists. Yeah, elephants definitely exist. And he, again, focuses on India, which is very interesting because you oh. also mentioned India mm-hmm. on your segment. Although mine came up because they all basically viewed Indians, the Indian country and people as mysterious. and Yeah, but that's the thing. Is, so we didn't really know, and I still don't really know what the, what the relationship was between Rome and India, but it sounds like they weren't really there a lot. Um, no. That I, I did some brief research, nothing even remotely, like, I didn't even click a link into Wikipedia to read an article, but they were there. I just don't know to what capacity or for how long. It was too far away from Rome for them to want to explore over well, there. Well, I, so I think at least the first guy that I talked about, he was in Persia. Yeah. But that is not India. No. No, and so they were probably getting a lot of this yeah. information secondhand, which is why a rhino would be a unicorn. Yeah. And why a, a, a king cobra snake would probably just be a dragon. Cool. So Pliny says that in India, the dragons and the elephants are the biggest. Okay. That Africa makes some makes some elephants and dragons, but they're the biggest in India. Yep. And they're constantly at war with each. They constantly fight with each other. Dragons and elephants. Yeah. Okay. He, Out of interest, is the Indian elephant bigger than the African I'm elephant? I'm not sure, actually. I didn't look into that. Okay. I always assumed that the African one would be the biggest. Me too. I'm not sure if that's just a, a weird brain thing or, or not, but... Okay. Hmm. Um... He says that the dragons would entangle and sna- snare the feet of the elephant, clasping and winding their tail around the elephant's body. In this conflict, they both die. The elephant falls down, dead as conquered, and with his heavy weight crashes and squeezes the dragon that has wounded and wrath- wrapped around him. So it's sort of just a uh, war of attrition where they both lose. Yeah. Moving on to chapter 12, he goes, this chapter is entitled The Sagacity of the Creatures. He posits that these combatants were well aware of the wiles of the other and that while the dragon was wrapping around the elephant, it would rub against trees and rocks, similar to how things do when they get constructed by boas and pythons. But the dragon at that point would attack the weak spot of the elephant, the eyes. And he says this, which I find a bit strange. He says, this is why elephants are so often found blind and worn to skeleton with hunger and misery. I mean, I guess if a... Because cobras can kill an elephant with one bite. They're so okay. poisonous that they can drop like a fully grown male elephant. Okay. I don't know how often you're finding those dead in India. I mean, certainly he wasn't finding them himself. It's just a bit strange that like, he's like, this is why you find them so often dead like this. And they're blind. So how do you know? They're dead. Like, why would you even know that they were blind? And he also posits that they were in this eternal conflict because elephants have cold blood, which is absolutely untrue. Mm-hmm. And that in the heat of the summer, dragons needed to drink their blood in order to cool themselves down. That's interesting because well, not snakes cold blooded. Yeah, serpents are cold blooded, and uh, elephants' blood is no colder than any other mammal. Okay. But they, he believed that dragons were able to consume the entirety of an elephant's, like all of it. Good for them. It's a lot of blood, and he also thought that the blood would make them drunk in a way, and that that is what caused them to be crushed by the elephant. Okay. Because they just would be in, like, a weird blood stupor. This moves on into chapter 13, which is just titled Dragons. Very simple. 
He says that they're uh, they're pretty big in Ethiopia too, but they're okay. not as big as they are in India. <gasps> size wise or like uh, yeah, size like wise. they're following. Yeah, they're <laughs> like, like they don't have as many like like TikTok Instagram followers, followers yeah. in. <laughs> He's very clearly talking about boa constrictors and pythons, and okay. they're just like this is just like fourth hand information, yeah. and they're they're becoming dragons. Okay. And he also thought that maybe they had frills, the dragons did. But there are certain small lizards that have crests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is actually where he mentions the basilisk again. Oh, cool. But he's probably just confusing them for frilled dragons. Okay. Which are, are de- dangerous in a way. I think they spit acid or something like yeah. that. But they're quite small. They're not like a huge thing. No, but you can imagine that they'd all get a bit confused. Yeah. And I'm more likely to buy that a cobra and a frilled lizard would mm. get confused for a dragon than I am that you would be able to buy a rhinoceros <laughs> as a unicorn. <laughs> That's true. He goes on in later chapters to talk about the subject of large serpents in India. So this is weird. So the chapter directly after dragons, he goes on to talk about boa constrictors and pythons. Oh. In like the same breath, he addresses that boa constrictors and pythons exist. Also, they address that rhinoceroses exist. Yeah, so so he, it's that third hand. Yeah, this is probably just someone who got to him before the information could be perverted in any yeah. way. I didn't, this was an accident, I found this, um, but you talked about how unicorn horns were a very sought after mm-hmm. sort of material. They were seen as holy yeah. in their own way. He has an entire chapter on remedies that you can derive from dragon bits. So I'm, I'm gonna read you some very useful ingredients. Great, because I wanna go look up that <laughs> medieval recipe for cooking unicorn. Yeah. So then I'll we fix just my a... bad stomach or whatever it is <laughs> with a dragon. Oh no, it's a little bit better than just get it. Fixing your bad stuff. Oh, it's not like an anti-acid. Why did I think that dragons would provide an anti-acid? Why was that where I well, went with They this? are destitute of venom. Okay. Dragons don't have venom. But the head of one placed under your doorstep would appease the gods and give you some good fortune. Oh, well, now and were, I really I, need it. They were Today's doing that me. in India, I guess. they were. I've, if they killed a boa constrictor, they'd slap its head on the door or the hearth of their house. and well, it certainly serves as a warning to other boa constrictors. That's true, yeah. Uh, another recipe calls for dried and beaten dragon eyes mixed with honey would create a liniment to guard even the most timid against the terrors of the night. So I don't know if that ma- it made like an actual like like sh- like I didn't I didn't understand if you like drank it and it made you braver. like a dream catcher yeah or if it just put you to sleep like it could be one or the other right? yeah 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 it could be like i made a liniment and normally that's a th- like a liniment's what you rub into horses yeah, yeah, yeah. um like joints right oh yeah so yeah. maybe you rub it into your temples and it just makes you sleep better i mean like i get like tea with honey i get but yeah. i don't know about the dried and beaten eyes of dragons that's a bit strange do you beat them and then dry them or dry them and then beat them i think you'd have to dry them and then beat them i don't know we'll have to Experiment. Okay, guys, we've got some really great (laughs) experiments coming up. Yeah, please. I'm going to cook with a unicorn. And I'm going to beat some dragon eyes. I know. Another recipe calls for dragon heart fat attached to deer sinew in the skin of a gazelle, and it would bring you great success in your lawsuits. Jesus. Which is a very Roman thing to to be concerned (laughs) with. I'm more excited about the fact that you think that as a person, <laughs> if you can track down dragon, yep. deer, and elk, I think, was it? No, gazelle, sorry. Gazelles. Yeah. And fashion those into a meal that you haven't got enough perseverance so, to beat your own lawsuits. <laughs> so I don't know if this is a meal or if it's more like a hex bag. Oh, okay. Because it says, like, I, I'm assuming that it's like a, yeah, like a little tuft of, little square of gazelle skin, and then you 
put the dragon okay, heart like, fat in and then okay. you sort of tie it up and you All right, no, I, you, that makes more sense. Maybe you keep it on you. Like yay supernatural for teaching us about hex bags. Um he also says if you hold the first joint of a dragon vertebrae, it will secure easy access to persons in high office. So if okay. you're not doing well in your lawsuits and you need to speak to the judge directly, <laughs> hang on to that dragon vertebrae after you're done putting the heart in a sack. Throw its head onto the door. Yeah, yeah. And then you should be right and on. And you can sleep easy, too. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a dragon sounds like it might solve most of my problems. Yeah. A dead dragon. Yeah, yes. Now, this one's a bit complicated. This is the longest recipe that I found in, in Pliny's writing. Okay. So if you have the tail and the head. So if you possess the tail and the head of the dragon... And then you mix it with the hairs off a lion's forehead. Okay. Stick with me. You have to then have the bone marrow from that lion. So you have to have a dead lion and a dead <laughs> dragon. Okay. This gets a little bit more. This is this is the easy half. Okay. You have to have the foam off of a winning racehorse. Okay. Yeah, I can manage. It. Okay. That's easy enough. Yeah. Uh, dog claws. Okay. Which you're going to have in a few days. You'll have some spares lying yeah. around. <laughs> yes, and my dog is getting declawed. Um, no, before you all get really worried, he has a s- random sixth toe that He's is got double dangerous. double claws. Double dew claws that need to be removed for his own safety. And if you tie this in a deerskin bag, I'm assuming. So another again, hex bag again. Yeah. Okay. This would make a person invincible. I'm sorry. Give me the recipe again. <laughs> so, it's, so here's the thing is like, I know deer can get pretty big. Yeah. But the tail and the head of a dragon is surely bigger than the interior of any bag that you could make out of deer skin. Well, no, because isn't there like a whole thing about how big dragons actually are? Yeah, but he's... So that's true. But if they're big enough to constrict around an elephant, they're at least as big as an elephant. Or longer than an elephant would be wide. Yeah. Which is big. Yeah, Guys, if you hear really random background noise, my puppy has decided that he's reaching the late night hysterical portion of the event. Yeah, um, so yeah. So I'm so, and then I don't know if you have to. Right. So, sorry about that interruption. That, that will probably all get cut out. But don't know. We we'll see how this goes. How lazy the editing. Gets. <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Um, we have an eight month old puppy. Life is just what it is. So. And so, like, I understand the smaller things. Like, a dragon vertebrae would still not be the smallest thing in the world, but you could probably keep that on your person. But I don't know if they they mean for you to have this in your possession at all times. Because if <laughs> you're, you're walking around with a handbag, you're dragging around a. And there's some weird palarva about how you have to do the stitches in. Um, what is it called when you when you alternate? Okay, you alternate stitching between deer sinew and. Once again, uh, gazelle sinew. So I do understand the smaller things, uh, yeah. especially the smaller sort of bag objects. But, I mean, even if a, a dragon, even if the dragon is small, yeah, you're still carrying around, you still have to have a dead lion around as well. So I don't... I'm th- just also, do you get all of these things in the same place? So you do, right? You get Africa, you get gazelles, lions, you mean dragons. In, you mean India and Africa, is that what you're talking <laughs> yes. about? I do believe that that is the case. They're big are there s- lions in India? I think so. Or is are they tiger? Are there tigers in India? Tigers are definitely in India. I don't remember using rem- my Aladdin knowledge. I don't yeah. remember if I do not remember if lions are indigenous to India. That okay. is my own ignorance speaking. Okay, I'm just trying to figure out if you're supposed to have traveled to several continents <laughs> to get these. Things I mean, they too. were the Romans were no strangers to that, so That's true. they were probably if they were if they needed okay. to well prepared to do that. I also don't know where they're getting these. In, like ingredient lists from. I don't know if they came from people who had been to India yeah. or, or what. He does say something about this invincibility bag. Mm-hmm. 
says, it is, however, no better worth our while to refute such pretensions as these than it would be to describe the alleged remedies for injuries inflicted by serpents, seeing that all the contrivances are so many evil devices to poison men's morals. Basically, what I think that means is that, like, you shouldn't bother going about doing any of this because you're going to get bitten by a snake. Okay. But in a very roundabout Roman way of saying it. In a Roman way, it's saying, by the time you've tried to do this, yeah. you're dead. Yeah, and there's and there's no point in refuting these recipes or mm-hmm. whatever because you're probably just more likely to get bitten by a snake. That's sort At of what I got out of it. I mean, I certainly got the, there's no point in me trying to refute these. Yeah. Well, so at least he's accepting. And he thinks that, it, that these just sort of, these things will sort of inspire people to betray their morals in order for in order to be invincible or to have a superior, you know. I might have to have a chat with my morals if I could become invincible <laughs> and superior. There was another one I could have sworn. Oh, yeah, there was one. There was a necklace. Oh, I make, like jewelry, too. You make a necklace of the teeth with, again, deer sinew as the Hey, wait, teeth of what? The, of the dragon. Okay. Again, we're. I think we're we're under the assumption that they're smaller than their sort of more modern counterparts. Yeah. Okay, and it renders masters indulgent and your rulers gracious. So all of these recipes have a theme of sort of making people like you more. Yeah. Okay. Sort of. Yeah. Fault. Uh, artificially boosting your. Yeah. Your they're not of, like you're gonna get great wealth. No. They're, they're like your your life will probably just get a little bit yeah. better. Okay. Which I think is totally fine. Yeah, I'm with you. There was also a, a throwaway line of the, the the dragon fat repels venomous creatures. Okay. So now we've done some Pliny stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm going to dive a little bit into the Greek and Roman dragons because those are basically the direct predecessors to what Western Europe. So did Greece and Rome actually have their own dragons? They do. They okay, because the, they didn't have their own unicorns. Yeah, so the Greeks and the Romans both had their own words okay. for dragon. Did not write those down. But the word dragon did arrive in English in the 13th century from a French word, the French word dragon, which has its roots in Latin and, and Greek. Okay. Yeah, and like I said, the Greek and Roman dragons are basically what you see, how you see the Greeks and the Romans framing their dragons as like, how they interact with the, their 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 heroes yeah. is very similar to what Europe will do with the medieval yeah, well, centuries still Europe, later. But the medieval yeah, yeah, medieval Europe. Um, you see, the first instance of this is not a physical dragon; it's the character Agamemnon from the Iliad, and he basically wears a blue dragon motif. It's his like his cuirass and his belt are both uh, blue dragons. Okay, and I'm, I think it's probably just an indication of strength. Okay, um, in a poem called the Theog- Theogony. Sorry okay. about that. Uh, Zeus fights the dragon Typhon, who is claimed to have a hundred serpent heads and the voice of many animals. Okay. So sort of like a Leviathan type deal. All right. Typhon's plan is like most evil titans to overthrow Zeus and take control of the cosmos. And I have a very long section of that of that epic right here to read for you. Cool. It is quite long, so bear with me. Okay. Good. And uh, yeah, let's. We'll dig do it. it. We'll get. It. We'll do it quickly. Zeus thundered hard and mightily, and the earth around resounded, resounded terribly, and the wide heaven above, and the sea and ocean streams, and the nether parts of the earth. Great Olympus reeled beneath the divine feet of the king as he arose, and earth groaned therein. And though the two of them, oh, and through the two of them, heat 
took hold on the dark blue sea through the thunder and lightning and through the fire from the monster and the scorching winds and blazing thunderbolt. This is all very wordy. Okay. No, I'm, I'm with you. The whole earth seethed and sky and sea and the long waves raged along the beaches round and about at the rash of the deathless gods and there arose an endless shaking. Hades trembled where he rules over the dead below and the titans under Tartarus who live with Kronos. Because of the unending clamor and the fearful strife, so when Zeus had raised up his might and seized his arms, thunder and lightning and lured thunderbolt, he leapt from Olympus and struck him and burned all the marvelous heads of the monster about him. But when Zeus had conquered him and lashed him with strokes, Typhon was hurled down a maimed wreck, so that the huge earth groaned and flame shot forth from the thunder-stricken lord and the dim, rugged glens of the mount when he was smitten. Zeus throws a bunch of lightning bolts at Typhon and casts him into Tartarus. Okay. Which is where he also imprisoned the Titans. Wow. So Pretty big death. Also, quite impressed because you handwrote that paragraph out into your notebook. <laughs> and I have and horrible you, handwriting. And you have horrible handwriting, <laughs> terrible note-taking, and yet I think you read that pretty flawlessly. Thank you. I appreciate that. I did I did have to – there were a couple of times where I was like, I definitely don't know what that word is, so I'll just sort of – I'll Budget. throw in a word that okay. looks and sounds correctly. So you see here you have Typhon, who is a very clear, like, anti-Zeus. Okay. He's evil. He's the... Yeah. He's... Zeus has to conquer him in order to save the world. Let's be clear. Zeus not really blameless in life. No, not a great guy. Not no. a great guy by any stretch. But in this instance, he is, like, the quote-unquote hero. Okay. You also have stories of Apollo killing Python. Python was just another big... Okay. Big dragon. Uh, you have Hercules slaying the Hydra, which is a very popular story, obviously. One of his 12 trials, again, yeah. hero, kill the dragon, get the girl, all the stuff. God, how pathetic. And Jason and the Golden Fleece, another very famous Greek story. Yeah. Um, the fleece is guarded by a dragon in a copse of woods, and you have... Did you find anything as to where this whole dragon guarding treasure thing came from? So there's an instance here, actually. Um, well, it's because dragons represent greed. Okay. They end up representing greed later on. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. I'm not sure if the Greeks felt the same way, but it, it's it's kind of implied that they all sort of well because they're guarding maidens and stuff, not yeah. necessarily piles. I don't think and it's. I don't think it's a purely Western Europe idea that that dragons were hoarding okay. treasure. And so Jason here has to either in two variations of the story either kills or tricks the dragon into getting the golden fleece. Yeah. Very much like Bilbo Baggins in the Ring with Smog. I was going to say Harry Potter and the and yeah and the. Hungarian Horntail. Yeah. Or, well, not Norbert, because Norbert just gets shipped off in a crate. But yeah, no, the Hungarian Horntail, because he has to fly away. Fly away. <laughs> fly and get So this thing. translates very well into Western Europe. Okay. In the 11th and 13th century, this is when dragons are the most popular in Europe. Uh, you have the story of Merlin, the child prodigy, who tells the, I don't Vortigern? Vortigern? Wait, is Merlin the child prodigy, Merlin the The wizard, wizard I believe, okay. yes. Um. And Vortigern, who I should have written down his title, is attempting to build a stronghold to protect his people against the Anglo-Saxons, but it is continuously being swallowed into this hill. And Merlin goes, hey, dummy, there's dragons living in there. And so they go to the top of the hill, and there's a big pool, and they drain the pool somehow, even though it's the 11th century, and that would take a long time. And in the bottom of the it's pool... It's just a plug. <laughs> yep. Two dragons are sleeping, uh, a white and a red dragon, and as soon as the pool is drained, they begin to fight with each other. Okay. This is an allegory, by the way. Yeah, I also feel like I've seen an image of this. You have. It's a very popular painting. Okay, all right. Um, the white and the red dragon begin fighting, and the white wins, which okay. is the allegory of England being successful in conquering Wales. Okay. 
Um, yeah, because Wales is the red dragon. But then it does say that the white dragon will win, but the red dragon will come back and defeat the white dragon, which okay. I, I'm assuming it's just Welsh independence from England, I'm guessing. Okay. And I'm not sure if that happens in history. I don't think so. No, because Wales is still part of the UK. Yeah, I don't know that that is a real thing. but Right, and so similar to the unicorn, you have Christianity's influence on the dragon. Interestingly, dragons are often referred to as illuminating the air, which Christians translated to bearing light. Lucifer, Lucifer does mean oh, the bearer okay. of light. Yeah. So you have dragons, which equal serpents, which equal Satan. So in in Christianity, they're synonymous. Dragons are greedy and cruel and constantly hungry. That's okay. I think that's I think Christianity basically, since they attribute them to Satan, they give them all of the negative. I was about to say, do they get like every single one of the seven deadly sins? I believe so because at one point in the Book of Revelations, there there's a, a verse here from Revelation: an enormous dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Uh, okay who descends upon a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars upon her head. Okay. I What's the, I wonder why the 12... I'm assuming... Means, well, but... it says 12 is the perfect number, which we oh, talked yeah. about in the 13th in the episode. episode. Um, 12 apostles. Okay. Um, okay. There was, I, there was some symbolism to go into, but I didn't really... Okay. I just didn't really do that. Um, and then you have the, those the pretty popular Western European stories of St. Margaret of Antioch, okay. the, the virgin martyr. I have no, I don't know that I know so that So she one. was tortured for her faith in the Diocletitanic persecution, which was the like final Christian persecution by the Romans. Okay. And was thrown into her cell and confronted by a massive dragon, but he was fled once she performed the sign of the cross. So in a very similar fashion to, again, we have a, we have a virgin martyr yep. who, who casts pure evil away from her. Okay. She probably, there might be a story about her involving a unicorn. I'm like, and then the unicorn and comes, the, lays on her. And, and then she has a baby. She has a baby, and we call it Jesus. <laughs> and then you have, I'm assuming you've heard of St. George and the Dragon. Yes, well, that's, that's a, a very, very famous. Yeah, so this is the 6th century. Yep. Uh, the story takes place in a city in Libya called, I believe it's pronounced Silene. That's how okay. I'm pronounce it. The city is. Oh, wait, why do I know this? Have I? Okay, yeah, all right. We don't, I don't think we've talked about it, but this is like a popular English story. You've, you had to have heard this growing up. or Yeah, but it was only recently. I can't remember what I was researching, and I'm sure it was something to do with this. I don't know. Um, that I realized that St. George and the Dragon was not actually a tale in, that took place in England on British soil. Was it the Silent Pool? I honestly don't remember, but carry on, because it might come back it, it to never came on. It never came up in the podcast, I don't think. No, no, I don't think it has. I'm wondering. Okay. Well, I'll I'll continue the story and see yeah. if you remember. So the city is beset by a dragon who consumed a young shepherd. The townsfolk, in their fear, begin to leave sheep for the dragon, uh, and then, then they quickly run out. So they run out of sheep, uh, and instead of deciding to leave or fight the dragon, they decide to start sacrificing their children. Obviously, they, they do this via a lottery system, very similar to the Hunger Games, yep. and very similar to the Hunger Games as well. The king's daughter is drawn out of the lottery, and he pleads, but he's unable to save her because that's fair as fair, I guess. Yeah. So they dress her up as a bride and then tie her to a boulder. Okay. I'm guessing that's a some really poor allegory for the dragon being, like, evil incarnate and stealing. Virgins. Well, virgin, yeah, virgins or... Um, have we ever talked about virginity as much as we have in no, this one episode? We haven't, which is incredible. I'm assuming, it, yeah, the embodiment of pure evil and sort of like the stealing of innocence, I guess. I don't know. Probably a Satan reference in there as well. St. George just happens to be in the area and he finds her tied to this boulder. Also in Peter Pan. 
Isn't Tiger Lily tied to a boulder and been sacked? Maybe to the crocodile? Sacrificed something. I feel like because Pliny does reference crocodiles as well, but he oh, does say okay. that there's no way these are dragons. Well then, okay. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think you are. I think you might be. I haven't okay. seen the movie in a very long yeah, time. Yeah, I just but have I think a vague right. visual reference to that. So Saint George, Saint George arrives and decides he can't leave this poor young girl to be tied to a boulder and consumed by a dragon. Well, at least someone does. Yeah. So the dragon comes down and Saint George incapacitates it first by stabbing it with his lance, and then. Wouldn't you believe it? Performs the sign of the cross, and it completely stops the dragon from being able to do anything. So he binds the dragon and okay. takes it back to the town and does this very strange thing where he basically says, if you don't convert to Christianity, I won't kill the dragon. <laughs> you convert to Christianity, and I'll kill the dragon, okay. which is really just a veiled threat. Yes. Very thinly veiled threat. Yes. And then, of course, they convert, convert to, Christianity. to Christianity, and he kills the dragon. But it is interesting because in Libya... You would assume it they'd be it'd be a originally Muslim city, right? Or country. yeah, con- no, I mean Silene specifically <laughs> oh, okay. the city. Yeah, Libya, I know is a country. <laughs> you'd assume that they were Muslims, but it's interesting that the story wouldn't have taken place on, like obviously it couldn't have taken place on British soil because everyone was either a Christian or whatever at that point. So anyway. maybe one of the reasons why I was reading about him was to do with how Christianity came to the UK, right? Because we're kind of getting there in history through a house. Yeah. But I don't know if he was like, when did, were the Crusades happening? Do you have 12th, 13th. 12 and 13th. 12, 12 and 1300s. Okay. So not at this period of time. So he wouldn't have been a crusader. He was just on a mission from God, I guess. Well, it's possible that this story I didn't... think that maybe the Crusades happened before then. Okay. As well. Oh, there were several Crusades, right? Yeah, because they would have been crusading earlier than that, but England possibly didn't get involved until... So, I mean, and it's possible that this story was written All right. in the 11th or 12th yeah. century and they just slapped a, a, a arbitrary later or yeah. earlier date on it. So that's basically... What, what's the date? Uh, the 6th century. Yeah, because 6th century England, we were learning to, like, we weren't crusading. No. Anyway, I guess we'll learn that on History Through a House. So yep. come check that podcast out. Yep. So, yeah, those are those are some of, like, the super popular cool. stories. Although um, we jumped past the 6th century on History Through a House already, so oh, yeah, that's did, why yeah. I know that we they weren't crusading. Well, anyway, go check that episode out. Dragons, similar to unicorns, have a have a small place in heraldry. Okay. Um, I mean, specifically Uther Pendragon. I don't – I'm going to sound, again, like a real moron. He wasn't a real person, right? No, I don't okay. think he was. But we will at some point have to, of course, go into – Arthurian legends. Arthurian legends because yeah. we did talk – Briefly about Gwen. Yep. Um, yeah. Last episode. Mm. So, no, but maybe. Um, and his herald, his uh, is it called the her- Is it just called a herald, or is it called like a standard, or? Uh, it depends on what you're talking about. So his like crest, I okay. guess. What was um? Heraldry is like the the overall term yes. for it. Yes. Okay. So like his like his family, the Pendragon the family crest, crest. Yeah. Would have had two gold dragons on either okay. side, and that in that instance, for some reason, would have represented bravery and strength. Okay. So it's interesting. Good, there's a there's a weird swing at some point, and I think it's just all contextual, mm-hmm. where, like, the dra- dragons aren't, n- are, like, maybe seen as, like, not, not evil, but also not, like, necessarily good. They're just sort of, like, well, no, they're sort of just, like, they're strong. They okay. do represent strength almost in every instance that they're mentioned. I don't know. It's weird. You would have thought that, like, Uther Pendragon would have had the lion. Yes. Also, it's on the Welsh flag. I mean, the Welsh flag is a dragon. That's a wyvern. Oh. It's different. 
I didn't know that. I will go into that right now. Okay. So wyverns, like dragons, tend to have two different sort of um, ideas about how they would behave. Occasionally, they represent viciousness, envy, and pestilence. I'm sort of like a dragon in some instances. But the Welsh might have used it as their on their flag because it does represent overthrowing Satan specifically in heraldry. It is a symbol for overthrowing Satan. Oh, okay. So kind of weird. How, when you look at a dragon or a wyvern, do you know the difference? Wyverns are bipedal. Dragons are quadrupedal. Okay. Okay. Um, so if it's bipedal, yep. you're all right. Yep. Quadrupedal. You're run you're away. Going all, to a rock. Run away all night. Yeah. We had to make it rhyme. Did we? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so, there's like this this kind of strange shift where um, dragons are the valiant instead of being greedy are valiant defenders of treasure and that might be why okay. Pendragon used them as a standard. Yeah. It's sort of like the protection of your land, yeah. sort of like a nationalist view of a dragon, and that they they do represent valor and protection. Mm-hmm. So they're just sort of like, yeah, I I'm here protecting my stuff. Leave me alone, or I'm well, gonna. Well, because that is kind of how it. Ends up, I guess, now, which is dragons aren't antagonistic necessarily. Not unless you you tread on them. Don't, yeah. Don't go stepping on no dragons. But generally, like now in myth, all of yeah, and uh, they're not antagonistic. And they can be reasoned with, sort of. Yes. They're not just like mindless. Yeah, they were actually yeah. old. Yeah. They are. There is a word. What is the word where you have a a conscious? Oh, um, um like that. But I can't think what the word is. I can't either. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know the not, word I'm looking for? Um, I do. It's on the tip of my tongue. It's not personified because that's when you give human characteristics to something that isn't a human. They have like reason. I mean, they have reason. Yeah, okay. Um, that, Everyone that, knows what we're talking about. Of, Fine, tell me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's, Shout out your TV or your phone. <laughs> your TV. <laughs> Please don't be listening to this on your TV. Actually, listen to it wherever you want to. So yeah, those that's sort of just like the rundown of dragons. And like I, I think I said in your sec, before we even started your segment, um, every culture has dragons. Yeah. All of them, and they're all different and different. Like, Europe is sort of not unique in the sense that they sort of um, develop to have legs even. Like, the like the yeah. sort of physiology of them is different. Like, in, in Japan and, like, in East Asia, you have a lot of sea serpent. Yeah, well, um, so I didn't go into, like, because Japan has its own version of, like, unicorns, too. Hmm. Um, Maybe we'll do a Japan version of this episode. Yeah, I don't know that there's perhaps enough information oh, on that for for a full episode. A full episode, mm-hmm. for, but they did have a. They certainly had like a version of a unicorn. Too. Interesting. What were we talking about before that? Oh God. Um. Oh right. Yeah. And so the the major consensus of you know the mythology experts, which we are not, is that this the reason that every culture has dragons is because our ancestors feared snakes so much. Okay. Because snakes, at a certain point, were our largest predators. Almost, well, and un- that makes sense because they are made into p- evil. Yeah, exactly. They're evil in every story. They're the yeah. They're the the conniving. No one's ever written a story where a snake is a hero. No, no, that's definitely true. They did a study that said even today, like thirty eight out of a hundred people are afraid of snakes. The number might actually be higher than that. I would have thought it was higher. Um, but yeah, so it just goes to show that like. Uh, we like to shine a little bit of reason. My father-in-law had a snake in the bedroom that we used to stay in in his house. Oh, was it a big one? Yes. Was it a boa constrictor? You didn't meet Joe, Joe Snake. This is Adam's uncle. Oh, yeah. Joe is your uncle. You said father-in-law. Uh, yes. <laughs> you said stepfather. I was like, no, I was like, my Wait. father-in-law. Yeah, I didn't, realize Joe had, I didn't realize Joe had a snake. I think, yeah. I, 
I think I've seen the terrarium. He had a big snake in our bedroom. Ugh. Which, I have to admit, I, like, gave zero thoughts about. Yeah. Like, I've never had a problem with snakes yeah, at all. I don't all. either, really. But I think my mom was a little, like, why? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't know that. I mean, I've seen the tank. I think Joe still has the tank, but. He got rid of the snake. It got big. Yeah, I believe that they do. They don't. I don't think. I don't think like fish. They stop growing based on the confines of their no. their cell. No, but I can so, imagine because those things get very big and very yeah. crushy. It'd also be interesting to know because obviously we all know dinosaurs got wiped out, right? Yeah. Oh, they also did say that some of these theories could have come because the beginnings of archaeology. That's what I was going to say. The Romans were digging stuff up and finding huge bones, and they were just like, "What's this?" Yeah. And so they're like, "It's a dragon." Which I was kind of all, and I think, yeah, so that's one thing. But also, like, we know that, from my thing, that Auroch cattle still, like, these gigantic cattle still wandered around. Mm -hmm. So maybe the snakes were bigger, or the lizards were bigger, or they were more venomous. Well, that's the thing is, so, like, a, and so maybe they're talking about, like, baby elephants in full-grown boa constrict. Because, like, a full-grown python or boa constrict could be, like, 36 feet long. Not, that, that might be a bit long, but like they're massive because yeah. they don't stop growing and they don't ever really die. So it's possible that, that like you know there's just some wires crossed somewhere. I mean, animals evolve is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So it's possible that they were just gigantic. It's possible that just yeah, I'm sure that there is some some archaeologist out there who's dug up the bones of a absolutely mammoth serpent. Do so wait, do snakes have bones? <laughs> no, they're invertebrae. I okay, I did wonder that when you were saying about snakes taking have, the skull and the snakes snakes have a skull. They do have a skull because I've seen that. And they have a they don't have do they have a spine? I don't know. But my point being Worms is that I'm not sure that you can all have all those wait, they do. Like if you see a snake decomposed, which is horrible, but if you've ever seen a snake decomposed it's got, like, yeah. it's got a skeleton. Yeah, it's it's because it, it has to be because worms don't have Worms are invertebrate, but snakes are not. Do snakes, do snakes have, have spines? They must do. Yes, they do. Okay. And uh, on that note, we've solved <laughs> one of the most legendary mysteries. Snakes have between 200 and 400 vertebrae with as many rib- ribs attached. See, I feel like... And I'd... if you found one of these things, I would absol- I'd be bricking it if I no, ever you found see, something I've like seen, that. I've seen a decomposed snake. They're kind of cool looking. I've seen a decomposed snake. I have no idea. Wow, my memory is really bad. I have no idea why I know about St. George's Dragon being in Libya. And I have no <laughs> idea where I saw a decomposed You've snake. You've probably been in a museum once in your life. No, I, like, have a flash memory of seeing, like, Yeesh. on the ground a decomposing snake. Interesting. I don't know. I lived in California. There's a lot of damn snakes yeah, in California. I've, I think I've, I saw one when I was in Wyoming as well. Yeah, I've they're, seen a lot of snakes in They're not fun to, co- to come up on. No. They're almost less fun than seeing a snake in li- like alive. I think, honestly, the biggest jump scare I have every single year when we were living in Virginia was the first time I nearly trod on a black snake. Oh, yeah. And they're totally not poisonous for anyone like in England. Mildly, right? I mean, like you don't want to get bit by one. But they, yeah, but not, they just will, have no interest. It will never kill you. If you and they have no one. interest in biting no. you. I've watched the cats play with them. They're just not vicious, but it doesn't stop. And they're huge. The ones on your property were yeah. gigantic. And it doesn't stop. And they're good because they keep away the copperheads. And, and they, they keep away all the mice rodents. and the all the bad things. And we, we like having them around. But that first time in the summer that you think it's a big, large uh, your hose, quake. Your garden hose. Or your garden hose. And then it moves. I swear it's that it's every year it got me. <laughs> or when they're hanging off that tree. And then, and, then, and then you're like, okay. 
Yeah, you rationalize. Like, you rationalize and you remember that they're there and you remember that they're around for the summer and you're like, okay, and they don't scare you as much. No, not at all. Not Although at all. the bartender's freaking out because one was in the basement of our wedding venue was one of my favorite moments. Oh, ever. really? <laughs> None of them would go down. Was it during a wedding? Yeah. That's hilarious. Uh-huh. That's really funny. But, yeah, okay. That's dragons and unicorns. And so snakes. I would really like to, at some point, dig into maybe another culture's version of dragons. Cause okay. I, I think there are several rabbit holes you could go down with... You know, like, just to look at different religions mm-hmm. and stuff, and then to be able to compare it directly to what we've just talked about, I think would be fun. Okay, so we're going to try and come up with some, like, we just recorded four or five episodes in a week. So... We've done very well. We did. I uh, hope very you guys fun. think we did well, too. Yes, because I think um, these have been some of the best. Yeah, we've we've really had a lot of fun with it. So we're going to try and get uh, researched on the next few episodes. Yeah, while I'm gone. While Adam's gone. And then just so you aren't going to know what the next few episodes no. are going to be. They're going to be a mystery to you too. Yeah. Because we're going to decide them over the next few weeks as we come up with some stuff. But if you're enjoying it and if you want to hear something, let us know. Yeah, if you uh, follow us on the Instagram, which you should, uh, or if you just want to send us an email at thelegendarytales at gmail.com. Yeah, that's it. Um, if you want us to talk about something specific, please send us a DM, an email. Instagram, best what, way, always. Yeah, follow us on Instagram. Rate, review, subscribe. Yeah, rate, review on, on iTunes, Spotify, the other one. Shh, not Captivate. That's the f- software we Overcast. use. Overcast. And maybe Himalaya, if anyone's listening on Himalaya. Thank you very much. I'm going to go to bed now. All right. We're going to stop rambling. Bye. I'll see you next week. Bye.